This identifies two big items, and we looked at the first of those last week together and want to consider a second one here today. Uh, But before we do that, uh, let's just remind ourselves, based on Mark chapter 7, what is legalism? In Mark 7, legalism is one of two things. Sometimes it's both. Um, It could be adding extra man-made rules to God's commands and, and essentially making them equal to what God says. Or it could also be viewing those man-made rules or even God's commands themselves um, as the means by which someone becomes clean or stays clean with God. This is how um, I please him or earn his favor or even buy it. And Satan loves to present legalism as the way of salvation and then also as the way for a Christian to, to, to be in God's good books all the time. Satan loves to say, look over here at the outside of your life and how good it could look if you just did this, that, or the other. And if, if you uh, kept up with this rules, this list of rules and regulations that you can do, and if you're focused on all those things, what you're never going to do for even a split second is, is look at your heart and what is going on there. Satan says, here's something doable. And if you do it, you'll be clean before God. And do you know what else you'll be? You'll be better than all these other people around you. People often think that if they're excellent little rule keepers, they will be clean before a holy God. And rule keeping ends up becoming basically a a currency. It becomes uh, money. The currency for cleanness and divine approval. If I have this, then I can buy something. I can buy God's favor. In Mark 7, 1-23, Jesus interacts with some Pharisees and scribes who are convinced that they are clean before God. They have all this currency. Look at what we've done. We've done this. We've done that. We're clean. God must really like us. But Jesus disagreed because their cleanliness was based on their own man-made standards. Last week, I asked a question to you, and I want to ask it again here today. Are you a legalist? This sounds like, I mean, it's just such a nasty term. Oh, no, 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 not me. And yet legalism comes in an endless number of forms. And actually, I think what can happen is you could just have it in a small pocket of your life, as could I. And uh, maybe it could just be this one little sliver where uh, you're just not looking at things biblically. Are you 100% sure that you are completely untainted by it? It's a critical question. And especially as, as you look at this as a way of salvation, legalism actually becomes a road to hell. It leads away from the gospel. It leads away from Jesus. As we saw last week, these men don't need Jesus. They don't even like him. They don't need him. They're good in their minds. They have no use for Jesus. As we jump back into this text, I just want to read all the way through it. Mark 7, 1 to 23. Why don't you follow along as I read? Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. 
in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever, whatever you have, would have gained from me as Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean, And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Last week, we considered one item that legalism misidentifies. Legalism misidentifies the standard of authority, and we saw that in verses 1 to 13. The only standard of authority is the Word of God. And while the Bible will have no co-regents, it will have no kings right along beside it, legalism actually gives authority to man-made rules as if they were king, as well as traditions, and it sucks the authority right out of the Word of God. And as we saw last week, that produces an environment that's just ripe for critical comparison and hypocrisy and pride. That's the world that these Pharisees and scribes are living in. But it's not just that legalism misidentifies the standard of of authority, as we saw last week. It misidentifies something else that we want to consider today, the second item. Legalism misidentifies the source of defilement. Look at verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Jesus is about to set the record straight on the true source of defilement. What is it that defiles a person? And so he gathers the crowd together and he summons them to listen up and make sure that they understand what he's about to say about the source of defilement. And this is critical. Look at verse 15. Jesus says there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Defilement does not come from out there somewhere. It comes from within. It comes from deep within. What? Jesus is telling people, many of whom uh, would have been devout Jews with, with a strong Jewish background, Judaism is all they know and the Old Testament law is all they know. Um, and, and he's telling them that defilement does not come from what you eat or drink. I mean, think about all the food regulations that the Jews held to. The disciples, Jews themselves, are no doubt rattled or confused by this. What? I mean, in this, even uh, there's going to be a story in the book of Acts uh, where Peter still is struggling with what Jesus is going to say here. 
So when the disciples get a moment alone with Jesus, they, they want to ask him about it. That, that did not sound right. Look at verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, about this massive statement that Jesus had just made. And Jesus slows down with his disciples uh, to explain to them just how it is that defilement does not come from out, out there somewhere. Look at verse 18. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Jesus is bringing everything into focus. Let's get these binoculars here dialed in. Let's get this microscope dialed in. You are not clean before a holy God because you warded off an endless number of contaminants out there. You are not clean because you've, ate, you've kept your mouth from eating this thing over there or you've kept your eyes from watching that thing over there or you've kept your mind from the influence of those people and you don't hang out with these people over here and you don't go over there to that place and you wash your hands of all the filth out there. No, I don't, even, I don't touch any of it. And you go through an endless number of religious exercises. You're religiously busy. That doesn't make you clean. Can you imagine how shocking that this would have been to these men, so many, many of whom had, had grown up in Judaism and, and their religious life was so regimented like that? Jesus says whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him. So based on what Jesus is saying here, maybe I could just give you an example of what moral defilement is not like. A large company is currently under investigation regarding a tailings pond in northern Alberta. And that pond has leaked toxic oil sands waste out into the environment and defiled it. In that particular situation, you have, let's just assume, an otherwise clean environment. The environment's nice and things are healthy and they're growing and they're not uh, tainted or defiled by outside toxins. You have an otherwise clean environment becoming defiled because something toxic was released. It was foreign to that environment and it was released into it. The picture in that case is of defilement that's moving from the outside in. The Pharisees and scribes lived as if moral defilement worked like that from the outside in. And apparently the disciples were very partial to that thinking as well. Probably due to their Jewish background. And Jesus explained that though that's how defilement may work in all kinds of settings, that's not how it works with moral defilement. It doesn't go from the outside in, it rather moves from the inside out. And now Jesus gives an illustration of his own. And here's why it doesn't work this way. Look at verse 19. Jesus explains. Uh, Let's back up into verse 18. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Why, we ask? Well, verse 19, since or because it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. If if you're holding an ESV in front of you, mine's got, uh, just after the word expelled, a little footnote takes me down to the bottom of the page, and the footnote says, goes out into the latrine. Nice. Jesus just gave a powerful but disgusting illustration. What is it? 
human excrement, sewage. And with one disgusting illustration, Jesus just flushed all of the legalist man-made righteousness literally down the toilet. The Jewish law mattered. And God expected it to be obeyed. But even in the Old Testament, the Old Testament law could never make one clean before God. That was never its purpose. The Old Testament law was a teacher constantly reminding people that you are not clean. And you can't make yourself clean. You're not clean before a holy God. And Jesus illustrates his point this way. I mean, let's just let our minds go with the illustration that Jesus just gave us. Here's the idea. Uh, It would go something like this. There's a law-keeping Jewish man. And because he doesn't eat pork, he believes that he's morally clean before God. And in fact, he is obeying God. God said, don't eat pork. The Old Testament law forbid doing that. And so he he thinks, well, I'm doing what God wants me to do. God must be pleased with me. And meanwhile, he believes that the Gentile person that he encountered at the market, as we saw last week in the first few verses, that these men would go to the markets and afterwards they just wash their hands and wash their hands. Anything that we touched, anybody that we came into contact with, we got to be clean of all that. And so this man uh, no doubt believes that the Gentile person he encountered at the market is morally unclean. Why? Well, because that Gentile man at the market, he's a pork eater. And Jesus explains that when that person from the market eats pork, it totally bypasses his heart. The pork goes into his mouth. It passes through his digestive tract. He sits on a toilet and he expels it into the latrine. I'm not sure that Jesus could have put it in any clearer terms. I mean, just this disgusting illustration to highlight how foolish what these men are doing and thinking really is. Because the legalist basically says, look at what's over there in that man's sewage. He has pork in his poo. Yeah, it's gross. And unlike that man, come look at mine. There's no pork here. And he's pointing to his own sewage to prove his own righteousness. Let me show you how clean I am. He points to his own excrement to prove his own cleanliness before a holy God. This just does not work. And when you stand before the Lord someday and you make your case, is that what you plan to do? Lord, look look at what is not here. Look at how clean I am. Let me show you all the disgusting filth of my life and show you what is not there. Look at what is not in my latrine. Jesus is not going to be impressed. And verse 19 concludes, thus he declared, all food's clean. It's a reminder for all of us that we are not saved through law and and for everyone going forward from this moment, the food requirements of the law, they're no longer binding. These things cannot make you clean before a holy God. They just point to the fact that you're not defilement does not come from out there somewhere you cannot make yourself worthy of heaven and the eternal presence of jesus by what you do and by what you don't do being a good little rule keeper will not make you clean and even as a christian just because you're being a rule follower and you're doing this and that it doesn't mean that all is well in your christian life and jesus is like wow things are going so well for this person If your perspective is that moral defilement comes from the outside in, here's the type of things that happen. You might think that you're clean when you're not. I mean, these men are convinced that they are clean, but they're totally looking in the wrong place. 
You might think that you're on your way to heaven when you're actually on your way to hell. These men think we are good. We are the best of the best of the best. And yet, they're actually, they have no hope of eternal life. They don't even need Jesus. Further, if you think that moral defilement comes from the outside in, you will find yourself likely playing defense all the time against everything out there. And you will live in perpetual fear. And that will shift your focus from giving proper attention where it should go to your heart. Everything out there to be avoided. Stay away from this. Stay away from that. Watch out for these people. Danger, 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 danger. And you never look here. The place that matters most and from where the greatest threats emerge, it's your heart. Some of you have gone through our parenting class during table time. I think one of the great benefits of that class is it's trying to get to this whole matter of the heart in parenting. And some parents say, protect, 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 protect. And what parent doesn't feel that need? There is so much out there that is dangerous. And there's a degree to which that protect mentality is very, very healthy. But what's out there is not the greatest threat to your child. Something else is. And it's actually residing right within them. It is their own heart. If defilement does not come from out there somewhere, then where does it come from? Well, Jesus, he's just going to say, let's get laser focused here. Defilement comes from deep within. Look at verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person? is what defiles him. Jesus gets even more specific in verse 21. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come. And then he lists this whole pile of sins. Jesus traces all uncleanness, all defilement, all filth, all sin, straight back to the human heart. It's been said this way, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. That's what's going on, what's going on in here. Your heart, don't just think of the literal uh, bodily organ, but think of, of basically your inner self. Your heart is the control center of your life, and every thought, every decision, every action gets traced back to your heart in some way. Every single one of those things. Sin does not enter your life from the outside. That's not what Jesus says. That's not how it works. Sin flows out of your life from the inside, the heart. And what legalism does is it mislocates our struggle with sin. Corruption is not external, Jesus says. It's internal. Sin comes from within, not from without. And if you take a good, honest look there at your heart, you will find you are not a good person. No one is. Jesus says, let's put the microscope there. You, you want to look at your hands and how clean or dirty they are and what you've eaten and the latrine and all these other places. Jesus says, look at your heart. You are not a good person. And once Jesus properly identifies the source of defilement, it becomes clear that every single human being has a huge, massive problem. It's, and it's not something out there that can be avoided. 
There's something going on in here that none of us can fix. And Jesus, once you realize that, Jesus is making it clear, all of us are defiled. All the sin that we see in the world, the sin that we see in our own life, it is flowing out of us. Moral defilement does not move from the outside in. It's not like the clean environment that became contaminated by the tailing pond that leaked into it. The picture Jesus gives us here is much closer to the picture of a volcano. The heart is a raging inferno of sin. Mount St. Helens looked like a beautiful mountain on the outside. But on May 18, 1980, that mountain exploded and it spewed forth out of its belly lava and rock and ash. And Jesus is saying, moral defilement's like that. You can look great on the outside. You can look like a beautiful mountain, but sin starts in the heart and it comes out in all kinds of forms sooner or later. And you may be even able to kind of contain it temporarily. But sooner or later, it shows itself in all kinds of forms. Like what? Well, verses 21 to 23 offer a sample list if you look there with me. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And we see the same kind of teaching elsewhere in Scripture where Jesus and and other writers of Scripture keep pointing back to the heart. For example, in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, we read this, Above all else, guard or protect your heart, for everything you do flows where? From it. Jeremiah 17, 9. I mean, this is the Old Testament uh, time period, the Old Testament law period. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. The idea is the heart is incurably sick. Who can understand it? And then in the New Testament, Matthew 5, 27 to 28, it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. This is Jesus talking. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her where? In his heart. In Luke 6, 45, Jesus said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Why do we say what we say? Why, why does what comes out of our lips come out? Because it was already there in our hearts. All sin flows outward from the heart. The heart is the source of defilement. So here's the idea. You are not basically clean. And if you can just avoid all kinds kinds and forms of contamination out there, you're still not going to be basically clean or basically good or anything like that. You are dirty. The Apostle Paul was once a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He understood these men well. If anyone could have confidence in an external pedigree, it was Paul. If anybody could point to this and that and all the good things that he had done, it was Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, he said basically this idea, I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that. Just topping everybody. And if anybody could boast and feel like they were clean, it was me. 
who could touch Paul's human righteousness and all the rules he had kept and all the good things he had done? But then Paul says in Philippians 3, he goes, now I consider all of those things that I could check off basically on a list of all the good things I've done. How did he describe them? As refuse or dung. A massive heaping pile of sewage. I think the Apostle Paul had come to understand what Jesus was trying to say to these men. This is garbage. And elsewhere, the Apostle Paul would call himself the chief of sinners. I am not clean, he said. What happened to Paul? Well, Jesus showed him the defilement of his sin-sick heart. It is not about what is out there, Paul. It is about what's in here. It is not about the list of things you have done. It's about what's in your heart. And once the Apostle Paul saw that, because God showed it to him, he goes, there is nobody that's dirtier than me. Jesus showed him the defilement of his own sick heart and that being clean is not about a bunch of externals. You can't make you clean. Your heart is dirty. And you need God to give you a new one. And he does exactly that. You need God's help in changing you from the inside out. Defilement comes from deep within. As you look for cleansing in the eyes of God, as you look for something we might call salvation, as you look for eternal life, you need answers that deal with the problem of the heart. And if your answers and solutions don't deal with the heart, then then you are in deep trouble. And if you are pointing to anything other than Jesus Christ, you are pointing to sewage. That's what he says to these men. Look at what you're pointing at. If you are pointing to anything other than Jesus Christ, you don't have a leg to stand on. So I want to ask you, what are you banking on to get to heaven? Are you like, Paul, well, I, I did this and I did that and I've, I've really cleaned up my life lately and I, I got rid of this and this was obviously a problem and so I dealt with that and um, I stopped doing this and I've been really watching my words and I stopped looking at this and I stopped doing that and I stopped hanging out with these people and I've been doing this good thing and that good thing. I've been giving my money to charity. I've been saying really intentional, nice things to people to try to build them up. I've just been doing all kinds of great things. You realize that you don't have a leg to stand on before a holy God? That doesn't, none of those things address what's actually going on and has happened here. And as you seek to live the Christian life, maybe you go, no, I, I do have a new heart. You too need answers that deal with the root of the problem. You need answers that deal with the heart. And the medicine and surgery provided by the Bible treat more than mere behavior. The Bible's not like, hey, you're doing this, stop doing that, make yourself better, become a better person. The Bible and the gospel are designed to go all the way down to the heart itself and do surgery there. The Bible does not teach moralism. It teaches gospel transformation that happens over a period of time from the inside out. I want to challenge each of you to do an internal investigation of your heart. What's going on in the control center of your life? Focus your attention there. It's much easier to go, well, I would rather look at that person and look at them and look at all the defilement in their life. Look at what they've done wrong. They did this, 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 and this. I'd rather look at other people and compare myself to them. Well, we already talked about what you're doing when you do that. 
Jesus wants you to look at your heart. What's going on there? Okay, sure, other people, they've got problems. No doubt. But so do you and so do I. And often when we look into the dark places of our heart, we see gross, disgusting things. What's going on there? Legalism misidentifies the source of defilement. You realize that man-made rules and rule-keeping are powerless to cleanse the defilement of the heart. Here's a question for you. Why is it so important that you and I get this right? Why is it so important to properly identify the source of defilement? What's at stake? What if you get this wrong in your thinking? As a Christian, as a non-Christian, what's at stake? If you misidentify the source, what's going to happen? You'll misidentify the solution. If the source of the problem is out there somewhere and there's all this sin and defilement that better not touch my life, then the solution becomes to try to be self-righteous by defending yourself against what's out there. Oh, I need to keep away from this. I need to rid my life of that. I just need to steer clear of all the garbage out there. And then maybe God will like me. Maybe if I do that, it's like, it's like a currency that I can buy God's favor with. You misidentify the source of the problem. You misidentify the solution. What the Bible says is what you actually need is a new heart. The problem is there. And you need a new one. Your heart is the source of the problem. And only Jesus can help you with that. Only Jesus can give you a new one of those. You cannot make yourself clean. You cannot make yourself righteous. Your heart is permeated by sin. And Jesus talks, or the Bible talks about this very thing that, that God would give people new hearts and he would make people new creatures. That's why Jesus came to earth. That, that you are defiled, you are broken by sin. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to take all of that filth. I'm going to take all of that defilement on myself. I'm going to grab all of your sin, all of your garbage, all that junk. And I'm going to take it on myself and take it to the cross and pay for it. And God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus as he was clothed there in all of your disgusting sin and defilement. He took it all. And in exchange, he offers you his clean garments, his righteousness, his life that does not even have even the tiniest speck of defilement. And he says, give me, your, give me your sin and I will give you my righteousness. I've paid for all your sin. I've paid for all your defilement. I died on the cross for you and I rose again. Here is a free gift for you. That's why he came. And we do not buy that gift. It's exactly that. Here it is. Will you take it? Will you acknowledge to God, God, I am a sinner. My heart is defiled through and through. I cannot fix it. Will you cleanse me through the work of Jesus Christ? That's why Jesus came. And you will never have new life. You will never have a new heart. You will never have joy and hope and peace in the gospel until Jesus Christ cleanses you. Maybe this time we could just summarize here what we've learned today and last week. Last week we saw that legalism misidentifies the standard of authority. The standard of authority is the word of God and nothing else. Legalism misidentifies the standard of authority. And second, legalism misidentifies the source of defilement. Why don't we take those two statements and let's flip them around into a question. Questions. And I think if we do that, you're going to then have two very helpful 
uh, questions that provide a framework for evaluating if something's legalistic or not. Is this a biblical perspective on this? So here's our two questions based on those statements. Number one, does it properly identify the standard of authority? And number two, does it properly identify the source of defilement? Two big questions that will immensely help you. Let's take those and what we've learned from this passage and let's just try to apply it to a case study. I want you to think with me here a little bit. A worship pastor is teaching a class and he's making a case basically for traditional worship. Maybe it's a Sunday school class or, I don't know, a a Bible college class or something like that. And he's making his case for traditional worship. And at one point in in his uh, lecture, he gives the class uh, a very, very moving illustration, a story. And he tells about being in another country and asking a local Christian, is there any music that you don't want in your church? And a local man responded, oh, yes. We won't have drums. Oh, why? He asked. Because, and here comes the explanation. When they bring the drums into our churches, they want to dance. And when they want to dance... They want to drink. And when they want to drink, they become immoral. And when they become immoral, they leave our churches. We will not have drums. Well, from that anecdote, the pastor cautioned the class basically about the slippery slope of abandoning traditional worship. And his illustration was powerful, right? I mean, you can almost envision it. You've got this setting of perhaps a group of tribal people and they've gathered together to worship God. But then somebody got out the drums. And next thing you know, everybody's drunk and they're sleeping with everybody. And it's pretty much like Israel at the base of Mount Sinai. You remember that picture? I mean, Moses goes up on the mountain and he comes back down. And it's like the entire camp has descended into moral chaos and debauchery. And in this case, it all goes back to the drums. What do you think? How should Mark 7 shape your thinking on that story? Well, we have two questions. Why don't we just start with the first one? Number one, does it properly identify the standard of authority? Well, it's an argument from an anecdote, not from Scripture. So I think right away we can say, well, the story itself actually holds zero authority. Okay, But we can't simply assume that the anecdote is biblical or unbiblical. That's probably not wise. I think what we need to ask is, well, does that that story actually flow forth from a biblical framework? And so we have to open up our Bibles and see what God says in this instance about the drums. Does the Bible forbid them? Does it speak in favor about them? Does it talk about them as evil? Does it give us warnings? Does it provide any guidance for how we should use them or when we should use them or when we shouldn't or what settings are appropriate? And our feelings and what we want to find or, or, or not find in the Bible, those things don't really matter. Our feelings have zero authority as well. The Bible rules and reigns, and so we just have to put our noses in the Bible and figure out what it says. And so that's our first question. Does it properly identify the standard of authority? That's where we start. And our second question, does it properly identify the source of defilement? What does the story that I shared with you trace immorality and drunkenness back to? Well, the story traces everything back to the drums. Mark 7 traces everything back to the heart. What's implied by the story is that if you want to safeguard your church from drunkenness and immorality, then don't ever let a drum through the door of your church. 
I mean, if a padlock on the door of, of your church building to keep the drums out is that powerful, then why would anyone ever need Jesus? Why would anyone ever need the gospel? Just padlock this and padlock that and padlock all these other things. Run airport security at your church every single Sunday. Run airport security at your home every single day with your kids. Are those things really that powerful? What people need is the gospel. Legalism always leads people away to Jesus. You just do that away from Jesus. You just do this and you do that and you do this and you'll be good. It doesn't lead us to him. What Jesus preaches, what Jesus talks about is the gospel. Look at your heart. You've got no answer but me. You have no solution but me. You you cannot safeguard yourself away from everything. You, You need help here in the control center of your life. A couple helps after looking at this passage for avoiding legalism. Just want to encourage you to be willing to recognize and perhaps even assume that you are probably a legalist in some way, shape, or form, and you may not even realize it. It may be a small sliver of your life over here somewhere. Legalism and license are in every church. I don't think you could find a church anywhere on the face of the planet where you do not see legalism and you do not see license. And every single one of us needs to start with ourselves and go, okay, what about me? Am I a legalist? Do I practice license? I just do whatever I want? And be willing to be challenged by others and listen. Let people push you. People say, hey, you know what? I... I think you might be in a legalism ditch. I, I think you're, you're holding things that, and you're saying things and treating them as scripture that Jesus doesn't, the Bible doesn't. Or, hey, I think you're in the license ditch. You're just like, hey, not, you should look at it. Like, honestly, just, I think you could have taken this too far. And all of us need to be willing to be wrong and to change our thinking and go, you know what, maybe, maybe my perspective isn't biblical. And at the end of the day, I just need to bow before whatever the Bible says and take that as the truth. And I need to be honest with myself. I have to keep looking at my own heart. Legalism, particularly as a way of being saved and a way of gaining an eternal standing with God, it's a road to hell. No man comes unto the Father, Jesus said, but by me. It leads away from the gospel. And we have to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ and his word. What do you say, Jesus? I want to have a relationship with you. I want to walk with you. I want to please you. Uh, Why don't you bow your heads at this time, if you would. And just want to encourage you over the next few moments to speak to the Lord yourself. Thank God for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And God, am I in a ditch somewhere? Have I become a legalist? Have I valued things you don't say I should? And, or have I taken your word and said, yeah, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do this anyway. What's my hope in? Have I lost my joy? Have I, am I trying to make myself clean? You speak to the Lord however he may direct you at this time.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it uh, does surgery even on our own hearts. And it holds before us the truth that we are sick, that we are defiled, that we are unclean. And it is not because of something out there. It's because of our own wicked, defiled hearts. God, we thank you that you would be so kind as to show us that very painful, uncomfortable truth, that you would show us our filth and depravity and how foolish it is to keep pointing to that again and again and again as the thing that might make us right with you. How foolish we are when we do that. And and Father, we, we ask for your forgiveness for ever thinking that we could buy or earn your favor with our own filth. We thank you that you would show us that our good works and our deeds and our rule keeping are nothing. And that you would point us to the sickness of our own heart. And you would give us the hope of Jesus Christ and the gospel that we could be washed, that we could be clean. Through the shedding of blood. Not through the shedding of our own blood, but the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ that we could be washed and purified, that we could have a new heart and become new people. God, thank you for that. Thank you for performing spiritual surgery on our lives. And God, we pray that we would keep going back to the gospel as, as the source of new life and as the source of ongoing transformation, that we would keep looking to you to do something in our hearts and that we would just come humbly to you again and again and again and say, God, I can't do this. I need you to do something in me. Will you help me? And we just rejoice that that though you resist the proud, you give grace, you give your help to the humble. Lord, there is nothing that we could do to earn your favor. There is nothing that we could do to buy it. And we say with the Apostle Paul, anything good that we have done, it's just refuse. It's just dung. It's it's disgusting. And we look at Jesus as the source and, or the answer, the solution to our problem. We thank you that as we look at Jesus and we look at his heart, that there is not even a speckle of defilement. There is not even the smallest little portion of sin. There never has there been a tainted thought, a sinful word, any form of immorality any form of hatred, revenge, anything, just pure righteousness. I thank you that Jesus Christ came here to earth in humility to die on the cross, taking all of our sin upon himself and experiencing all of your wrath for our sin in our place so that our sins could be atoned for, paid for, and in exchange we could have the perfections and righteousness and goodness of Jesus Christ and his actions and his heart and his thoughts and all of that credited to us. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you for that precious gift. And God, would you help us, for those of us who have been cleansed, 
have been declared clean and righteous, that we would not go on trying to continue to make ourselves clean and by your favor, but that we would grow the exact same way that we were made new, by your grace. Would you help us to look to you and would you keep changing us and making us more like Jesus? And God, we pray if there's anyone here that they're still trying to buy your favor. They're still trying to be good enough. Maybe they even still think that they can. God, would you in your kindness show them the folly of that? And, and would you help them to see Jesus as the answer? And God, we just pray that there would be um, an acknowledgement of sin and a trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Thank you for your word and thank you for the time that we have shared together in it. In Jesus' name, amen. You can look this way at this time. We have the privilege here this afternoon of going to the Lord's table together and remembering Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross for our sins and his righteousness and his sacrifice. So a couple of our men are going to come at this time and prepare for the Lord's uh, table. But as they prepared by coming this way, we all need to prepare. And maybe some of you have already done that. But uh, anytime we come to the table of the Lord, we want to come in a way, we don't want to come in an unworthy manner. We don't want to come holding on to sin. Uh, We don't want to come at odds with a brother or sister or someone and not having done what we can to make those things right. Um, We don't want to come uh, with known, unconfessed sin in our lives. And so this is a time for all of us just to pause and reflect as as the elements are passed and the uh, piano plays and you just have a few moments there in your seat just to pause and reflect on the cross of Jesus Christ and, okay, God, I... I want to make this right with you. Um, and if you, as far as you know, you're right with God and right with others, just a time to meditate on the cross and what Jesus has done. And I would hope after a text like the one we just looked at, a reminder, God, I'm dirty. Thank you for your cleansing, your Christ's work on the cross.